for this morning. Philippians chapter four and verse four. This is a um, this is a grand letter with which to begin the new year uh, in that it sets in perspective the priorities by which we must live no matter what this year should bring. Come happy circumstances, come uh, dark and sad and difficult afflictions. Philippians is appropriate to them all. In fact, Paul himself in this very letter talks about both, even as he is enduring imprisonment in Rome on the one hand and basking on the other hand in the love and the kindness of the Christians in Philippi. We hear something of that spirit in the verses we're about to read, though uh, no single passage in Philippians could possibly summarize the whole book or even capture, say, the main theme. There are so many themes that are woven through this book uh, together, yet it seems a good place at least to begin this morning with the introduction to the epistle, which we'll take up in earnest, uh, the Lord willing, beginning next week. But before going to the word, uh, to the one who illumines the word, let us go. Our Father, open your word to us, we pray. Grant us ears to hear, not the voice of man, but now the voice of God speaking to us, we pray. And write your word upon our hearts, we pray, that we may make our lives to mold, uh, to, to be molded to it and conform to it, that our lives may become biographical of this scripture, Father so that we may live it out and so bring glory and honor to you, we pray. Do this marvelous work, we ask, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 4 and beginning at verse 4. <clears throat> rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make known your requests uh, to God. And the peace of God, which passes all, surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We've just finished a celebration, uh, the holiday season, the Christmas season, in which we've spoken and sung often of peace, peace between God and men, peace of the Savior, peace between man and man, inner peace, and so on. We've prayed for peace, both for ourselves and for the world, and we've proclaimed peace just as the angels did to all those with whom God is pleased. Yet somehow, peace still evades many people still not within their grasp. Ironically, the season of peace has left many Americans still seeking it. Now in a world in which we are canceling flights out of fear of terrorism, where a tenuous economy is just now returning to the place it was years ago, where families are torn apart by all sorts of mayhem from inside and out, and the search for peace has, alas, led many people to places where they'll never find peace. Turning to tranquilizers, pills to give them peace. Finding another book, yet another book at a bookstore. 
another self-help book telling them how to find peace, but they are looking time and time again to find that peace from people, just as the scriptures say, who are more than willing to cry, peace, peace, where there is no peace. But there is peace. There is peace, and it is to be found in the most unlikely of places, in an ancient dungeon, worse than any spider hole we have unearthed, the filthy, stinking Rome prison, where lies a man, uh, possibly on death row, who knows the meaning, yes, who lives the meaning of true peace, who can say, from his chains, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. And things like this, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who knows of what he speaks and writes of the peace of God, which passes, surpasses all understanding that guards hearts and minds of those in Christ Jesus. Here in Philippians, over the course of the next several weeks, if the Lord should give them to us, we will learn about this peace, this joy, this secret of true contentment in whatever circumstance. But to the greatest, to get, to get the greatest benefit of this letter to the Christians at Philippi, we are first going to have to consider a little bit of the background. I want to take the rest of the time this morning to consider uh, three things. First, to consider Philippi, the city. And then second, the church at Philippi, and then this letter to the Christians at Philippi. First, take a glance with me at the city of Philippi, the place where these Christians live and dwell. When Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great, uh, despite Alexander's own claims to divine uh, fatherhood, I say when Philip II began his reign over the region called, Philip, uh, called Macedonia, Macedonia was about the size of Vermont. It was very small, uh, but it was not entirely insignificant, and certainly not to Philip. It was around 359 B.C. or so, okay, so 360 years B.C., and uh, Philip was modernizing his army, uh, giving them longer spears and a charging cavalry and better organization and all of that in order to extend his domain. But, as we've learned recently in our own news, armies cost money. And they cost lots of money. And the area around the town that he would name after himself Philippi was rich with gold. Uh, he mined that gold, Philip did, and used the proceeds either to fund his army or to bribe his way into conquest elsewhere. No fortress is impregnable, he is uh, reported to have said. No fortress is impregnable to whose walls an ass laden with gold can be driven. 
Historians say Philip opened more doors with gold than he did with battering rams or with catapults. His son, Alexander, we know him as Alexander the Great, continued the conquest in a big way. And as is often visibly the case, man's conquests redound to God's purposes and glory. Philip and Alexander managed to spread the Greek language all over the world, and it was on the back of the Greek language that the gospel spread all over the world. Now, as you historians know, Greece did not hold Macedonia forever. A couple of centuries after Philippi got its name, Macedonia, including the city of Philippi, was taken by the Romans. The gold was mined by that time, and the city reduced to what historians call uh, a small settlement. But it grew, especially because of an important event in 42 BC. The historic battle of Philippi, which pitted Brutus and Cassius, defenders of the Roman Republic, against Antony and Octavian, uh, avengers of Caesar's death. Two engagements later, William Hendrickson observes, Antony and Octavian were victorious, Brutus and Cassius were dead. Philippi became a Roman colony. In fact, it was called Colonia Julia Philippensis. Former fighters of Antony settled there in Philippi. And then there was that famous uh, naval battle at Actium the, to the west of Macedonia, just off the Ionian Sea in 31 BC, where Octavian won over Antony, who had himself become uh, uh, captive to his lust for Elizabeth Taylor, I, I mean for Cleopatra, and killed himself when he received the inaccurate report of Cleopatra's death. Well, under Octavian, whose new name became Caesar Augustus, Philip continued to Philippi continued to become be a uh, Roman colony. In fact, it was like a smaller version of Rome itself. Predominantly, it was inhabited with uh, Romans who uh, took pride in their, well, Romanism, and uh, they enjoyed full rights and privileges of Roman citizenship and remained on the Roman rolls. Uh, they were Latin speakers. They dressed like Romans. They exchanged money with Latin inscriptions on it, and, uh, and they were exempt from local interference, answerable to Rome only through a pair of Roman officials and their police force. We um, read, by the way, about these officials and their police uh, in the uh, book of Acts. It was an arrangement suited for everyone. Uh, for Rome, it was a benefit to have colonies out on the fringe to defend the borders. And for colonies like Philippi, there was the great benefit and privilege of enjoying Roman culture and government and politics. It was home away from home, or Rome away from Rome, you might say. It is of interest, uh, by the way, that Paul should write in uh, chapter 1, verse 13 of this letter from his prison cell in Rome about the gospel's progress among the imperial guard. Many of the people in Philippi were veterans of the Roman army, and so they would have taken a deep interest in hearing about uh, the spread of the gospel among uh, the imperial guard. Also, in chapter 4, verse 22, Paul sends greetings from the saints who are members of Caesar's household. 
striking. And uh, the only place in any of his letters that he mentions such a greeting. It is also uh, enlightening knowing that these were Roman citizens uh, as happy to live uh, as citizens in Rome in Philippi as they would back in Rome itself, that Paul writes to them of a much more important citizenship than any they have on earth in chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we await from it a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is more, the uh, Christians in Philippi were likely converts from the Roman religion. Do you remember what the Roman religion was? What was the Roman religion? It was emperor worship. Philippi was, was Roman to the core. And as such, the god of that place was Caesar. And any who deviated from this uh, state religion, such as true Christians must, would face serious difficulty and persecution. And this may have been at least in part what Paul addressed here in verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy, literally behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation that is from God and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So they're struggling with emperor worshipers on the one hand, the state religion, and we know they were also assaulted on the other by Judaizers. We've heard about them elsewhere in the scripture too, haven't we? We heard about them in, in Galatia and elsewhere who went proclaiming to the Gentile Christians that they must be circumcised in order to be saved. They may have been at peace for the most part in Rome, uh, but spiritual warfare was ever waging just under the surface, just as it is in peaceful America today. Well, so much for the city of Philippi. What second about the church? Well, you will likely be more, a little more familiar with the church. Uh, you who are students of your Bibles will immediately think of some very famous Philippian Christians. Do you remember who they were? You remember the one whose name we remember uh, included that very uh, city, that very place, the Philippian jailer. Uh, but he comes later on. Remember now that <coughs> famous Macedonian call that uh, Paul receives while on the second missionary journey. In Acts 16, we read that they're traveling and one night uh, Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia calling out, come over to Macedonia and help us. And as was with custom with Paul, he went to the center of action. In uh, Macedonia, that place was Philippi, which Luke describes in Acts 16 as a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. 
Now, they don't find a synagogue there in uh, Philippi, but they do find a place of prayer, remember, on the Sabbath day. Outside of the city, a group of women gathered at Riverside. And the people in Philippi probably didn't have any more use for the Jews than the people back in Rome did about the same uh, time they were exiled from Rome. Well, they spoke to the women, one whose name was very familiar to us. In fact, uh, the youngest member of our own congregation bears her name, Lydia. Well, this Lydia uh, was not an original uh, Philippian. Uh, she was originally from Thyatira, uh, which was, is in modern-day France, but her thriving business in purple uh, made her a big hit with the uh, Roman people who lived in Philippi. They loved to wear the royal color. Uh, she had been born a pagan, uh, had become a Jew in her convictions, and yet still that peace I spoke to you about a few minutes ago, that peace still eluded her, still escaped her. Something was missing. And Paul would be the one to supply the missing link between her and that peace. It was, of course, Christ, the Messiah, who had come himself, the Prince of Peace. Well, not everyone was happy about uh, these two Jews uh, who had wandered into Philippi. Uh, they had freed a girl, you remember, from an evil spirit that had possessed her and, and had made her of use uh, to her owners as a fortune teller and a source of revenue. Uh, we license foreign, uh, fortune tellers now, by the way. I heard on the radio uh, that uh, you could call this 900 number because uh, fortune tellers at this number were licensed. Uh, for the work they do. But uh, I say without the spirit that uh, Paul had driven from the girl, she no longer produced the sort of revenue that her owners had enjoyed, and it really ticked them off. And they, in turn, dragged Paul and Silas off to the officials and uh, trumped up charges, just like the Pharisees did about Jesus, by the way. Uh, they trumped up charges against them to cover up their own hearts full of uh, selfish and malicious motives. They said uh, these men, about Paul and Silas now, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. Well, any stick would do to beat these dogs, these Jewish dogs, and beat them, they most certainly did. They beat Paul and Silas mercilessly. They beat them with rods, and then they threw their bodies into prison, and their feet spread wide in the gruesome stocks, and their hands chained above their heads to the wall. It was about midnight, you remember, that the sounds of these two bloodied and bludgeoned men echoed through the pitch-black stench-filled corridors of that dungeon, not the sound of moaning, but the sound of singing. They were praying to God and singing his praises. And all the prisoners were listening. And suddenly, they all felt the ground begin to shake underneath them. And the, their chains began to rattle. 
and then violently shook the walls back and forth and doors flew open and shackles fell off of hands and, and the jailer awoke and saw the open doors and thinking the prisoners to have escaped and, and thinking it better to kill himself than to suffer the terrible penalty under Roman law for failing at his post, drew his sword to kill himself. And just as the sword was about to plunge into his chest, Paul shouts out, Stop! We're all here! He too, this Philippian jailer, was suffering from a terrible lack of peace, wasn't he? We know it because falling at Paul and Silas's feet, he pled with them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, was their answer, you and your household. And that same hour, the whole household was baptized. I wonder what it was that caused the magistrates of Philippi the very next day to send orders through their police to release these prisoners, Paul and Silas. Uh, may, do you suppose maybe it was that the two and two came together in their minds and waking up to an earthquake in the middle of the night, they, it occurred to them that uh, this may be due to the ones they've imprisoned and beaten? We don't know exactly, but we do know that they were in dismay the next day to find out that Paul and Silas, whom they had beaten and imprisoned without a trial, were Roman citizens. They should never have been beaten. They had the full rights of appeal and of complaint to the higher courts. And all of that could well mean the magistrate's heads on Caesar's platter. What a scene it must have been that morning when the magistrates decked out in all of their pomp and glory came personally and escorted Paul and Silas out of the dungeon while consuming very large portions of crow. They begged them to leave Philippi, no doubt to save their own skins from uh, even a local uprising should the truth get out what they had done to Roman citizens. And Paul and his companions oblige after one more visit to Lydia's beautiful home and to the brothers gathered there. Lydia and the jailer were not the only converts in Philippi. And off they went. Now that was the beginning of the Philippian church. Uh, Paul would return to visit with them again uh, during his third journey a couple of times. And even here in this letter, he writes that he anticipates and hopes to return to them again. But the most important contact now, as far as this letter is concerned, between Paul and the Philippian church was not Paul's visit to them, but their visit to Paul. Uh, Paul is in prison now again, uh, now in Rome, and true to the reputation of the Philippian church, they sent a delegation of mercy to Paul. And uh, this is a, a journey of some 800 miles through many dangers that Epaphroditus and the other delegates, uh, delegates traveled. Probably for a month or more, uh, this great uh, distance and a great uh, expense uh, to themselves and great sacrifice all to comfort Paul in his distress. But that's just the way these people were. That's the way this church in Philippi was. That's what they became known for, their extravagant 
love, their generosity, at great expense, at sacrifice to themselves, they always poured themselves out for others. Would that our church may grow in such a reputation as Philippi's did of deep sacrifice and love, even at a terrible cost to ourselves. Paul often, often during his uh, ministry had reason to praise God for the faith, the living and active faith of the Philippians, which lived in the form of love. So that is the, the church, and we've considered the city. But uh, one more matter requires our consideration this morning before we get into the series in earnest on Philippians, and that is the letter itself. Now, uh, William Hendrickson, whose commentary I plan to use and rely upon heavily through this uh, series, does a fantastic job of uh, describing the purposes of this letter. And so I'm not going to reinvent the wheel this morning, but uh, simply follow loosely the four points that uh, he uh, draws, the four purposes for which Paul wrote this letter, and then we'll be done uh, for now. First, gratitude. Paul writes this letter to express his gratitude. Now, he had probably already sent word through messengers and through the, through the chain of messengers back to Philippi to express his gratitude for their generous gift and uh, for sending Epaphroditus and his companions, in all likelihood we imagine he must certainly have had them, to uh, comfort and aid the apostle in his time of need. But now he wants also to write to them, to put his gratitude in a black and white. So he thanks them for their gift, we see in chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And then again in verse 18 of that chapter, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. But he not only thanks the Philippians for their gift, he also thanks God for the Philippians. Back in chapter 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, verse 4 now, always in prayer of my, in every prayer of mine for you, uh, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the letter expresses gratitude. Uh, second, there is guidance. As we continue in this letter over the next weeks, we will hear Paul exhorting them to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, to remain united, uh, to be imitators of Christ, to humble themselves as Christ did until his life becomes a description of theirs. But there are also enemies to be faced, so beware, he will tell them, and by extension us, we have not come to the place where our faith is impervious, where we can let down our guard. Indeed, we must press on, as he will say, press on toward the goal just as he did, remembering our citizenship is in heaven, unlike those whose God is their stomach. We must strive after courage, he will teach us, courage, Oneness, loneliness, helpfulness, obedience, holiness, steadfastness, and joy, focusing on whatever things are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and then, says Paul, the God of peace 
will be with you. So gratitude and guidance. Third, gladness. Be glad, he says, in effect, because whatever happens to me, whatever happens to me, it's for the advancement of the gospel. And even those preachers will hear him say, those preachers who preach Christ out of bad motives, they still preach Christ. And the gospel is still proclaimed. So be glad and rejoice. In fact, from beginning to end, this little letter is chock full of rejoicing, of gladness, of joy. From the belly of this prison cell, Paul writes not less than 16 times rejoice or something about joy. Hendrickson says that the letter is bathed in, sun, in the sunshine of joy. And the classic German commentator Bengel, who's known for his pithy Latin commentary, says that the Summa Apostoli, the sum of the epistle, is simply this. Gaudeo gaudeta. I rejoice. You must rejoice. And then fourth and finally, Paul prevails upon the goodness of the Philippians, the goodness that uh, God has supplied to their hearts to now welcome Epaphroditus back home with a most cordial welcome. They, uh, they didn't expect Epaphroditus to come home so early from his errand, uh, but he has suffered so much. Epaphroditus has in order to carry out the mission that they had sent him to fulfill. He had visited Paul. He had carried their gift for them. He had encouraged the apostle in prison. And now he was to be the instrument of carrying this letter back home. But how he had suffered. Epaphroditus had suffered in the process. He had been sick, we find out in this letter, sick to the very edge of death itself. He had risked his life for Paul. He had almost given it for Paul, and now the Lord has healed him and saved him from his illnesses and from the dangers. What a wonderful man this is, Paul writes. This one that he calls in Philippians, my brother and my fellow worker and my fellow soldier and their messenger and minister in his time of need. Paul knew that they were anxious back in, in, uh, in Philippi to see Epaphroditus after hearing that he had been ill. And so in true fashion, obeying his own instruction in chapter 2, Paul selflessly, lovingly, thinking of others more highly than himself, sends this loving and kind and encouraging servant back to those who sent him so that their concern may be eased, more important to Paul than his own welfare, that Epaphroditus should stay. He sends him back in love for them and self-forgetfulness about himself. This uh, is a masterful book of scripture we take up, dear flock. And by God's grace at work in us, as we consider this sort of heroic and self-abnegating, self-forgetful love, may we also, by God's grace, the same grace which met our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers at Philippi, 
May that same grace give us that same joy, that joy unspeakable and the peace that surpasses all understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.